be seated. We enter our story about Lazarus uh, kind of in the middle of things because it takes up the entire chapter. We're going to begin with verse 32. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may have believed that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Would you pray with me? Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, O oh Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever thought about what you wanted to put on your headstone? There have been some interesting ones over the years. Winston Churchill was asked on the occasion of his 75th birthday if he was afraid to die, and his response to that question became his epitaph. It said, I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. There's a name not given on this one that said, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. Can you imagine what Mel Blanc would say? You know Mel Blanc, right? Bugs Bunny, what would he have said? That's it. That's it. Rodney Dangerfield's tombstone says, There goes the neighborhood. 
But the one I love is Benjamin Franklin's, and I'm curious how they got it all on one stone, but it says this. Like the cover of an old book, the contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it shall, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved. If I ask how many of you would like to discuss your mortality this morning, my guess is that most would politely decline. At some point in time in our lives, we've contemplated it, been a little bit afraid and wondered about what we don't know about the other side. In fact, the fear of death is so common, there's a study of it called thanatology, which examines our reaction to it. In fact, a 2017 survey of American fears conducted at Chapman University said that 20.3% of Americans are afraid or very afraid of dying. Only slightly lower than the fear of speaking in which means we would rather be dead than stand here. Right? Additionally, the same study showed that patients' fear of death decreased as they entered hospice. And rightly so, because attention goes away from whether or not I'm going to live to family and love and faith. The most aggravating thing about our mortality is that it is inescapable. All of us know that at some point we will die, no exception. An article I read this week said that 2,000 of my brain cells will die today and never come back. And I'm Missing them. (laughs) Medicine has had a tremendous success in what is often called life-saving technology. But medicine doesn't really save lives. It delays death, doesn't it? It redirects it sometimes. We can't strictly say that lives are saved on any permanent basis. Our struggle is real. As just as it was for Lazarus, we would love the opportunity to argue with God about it. And isn't it just like us to tell God, where he should show up and when he should show up and how he should act when he gets there. 
Every one of us at one time or another has cried out to God, don't you care that I'm afraid and why aren't you here for me in a way that I can see it and know it and feel it? Our scripture lesson this morning deals with the uncertainty and struggle that humanity has had with death and mortality. The narrative begins with Jesus retreating to the other side of the Jordan because he's been threatened with his own life. They've attempted to stone him in Jerusalem just the chapter before. And when he tells the disciples that he's returning to Judea on behalf of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, they object, this is dangerous to you. But Jesus has a very special relationship with the three of them. He loves them, and they are family. Which makes this story all the more confusing because when Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, he says to the disciples, oh, this is not unto death, he's just sleeping. And the disciples say, well, well then if he's sleeping, he's going to get better. It makes sense to them that he waits two more days, but the folks back in Bethany don't get it. His response not only delays him getting back, but it's two days' journey, so four days before he responds to the call they've made. Nobody quite gets it yet. When he does arrive, Jesus is shamed no less than three times by those waiting. Martha first, then Mary, and then the whole crowd at the tomb. They just hurt all over. Even Jesus The resurrection and the life is so deeply moved by their grief and their pain that his waiting appears rather callous. But you and I know as the receivers of this great text, only we know that the wait, Lazarus' death, will become the instrument of God's glory and will become the beginning of our understanding that illness and death don't have the last word. I read an interesting blog this week called A Journey Through Awakening, and it says this, For me, one of my biggest revelations was being able to see how all emotions are extensions and expressions of either love or fear. Love or fear is the motivating force behind everything that we think and do. All the positive emotions that we have like joy, gratitude, peace, happiness, compassion, etc. are extensions and expressions of love. The negative emotions and feelings we have like anger, sadness, jealousy, depression, self-doubt 
are all extensions of fear. The blog goes on to say that fear and love cannot exist in the same thought. We do not see things as they are. Instead, we see them as we are. Jesus knows that, gets it better than we do, and it's only in facing the uncertainty of our mortality that we're able to face our fears and begin to replace it by love. The story of Lazarus is our introduction to a shared life in God's glory. Isn't it Lazarus who's the first one to grasp the impact of Jesus' proclamation that he is the resurrection and the life? Martha's response probably gives us our very first hope because when he reaches her in all of her pain, her little soul remains open. She runs to him saying, Oh, Master, if you had just been here. It's in that moment that Jesus tells her, Lazarus is going to rise again, and she says, Oh, I know. I know in the last day he'll be raised. And Jesus drops a bombshell. He goes, no, Martha, no, I am the resurrection and the life. It's me. It's in me. And those who believe this will never die. Do you believe it? Whether or not she does, it's so very clear that her love of Jesus makes her want to believe every word that he has said. And she says, yes, yes, I'll believe. But what makes this exchange so interesting is how John tells it. In most of the miracle stories within our scripture lesson, the miracle is offered and then the explanation follows. That's the literary pattern. In other words, Jesus' conversation here about how to interpret it comes with Martha before the miracle. In other words, his conversation with Martha saying that Lazarus will, and will rise again invites her to believe that Jesus is with her and in her grief. He, she's invited to believe him in spite of her grief. The impact of this shift is to put you and me in Martha's position. as those struggling to understand such a mysterious teaching, God wants to offer the blessing in Jesus before we taste it on the other side. We are right here with Martha. What does it mean in our lives for Jesus to say that I'm the resurrection and the life? What does it mean by saying that those who die shall live and those who believe shall never die? 
Martha doesn't know the outcome yet, and neither do we. But she functions as the role model of faith-seeking understanding. Like all of us, she's troubled that Jesus has not prevented a loved one from his death, but in the same way, we all wonder why God allows bad things to happen. Yet in spite of her uncertainty, she trusts God can somehow act restoratively through Jesus. Martha invites us morning, us this morning to keep our souls open to believe in Jesus more than we believe in our fears. Our second hope lies in the fact that this is a love story. It is not a resurrection story. It may include a resuscitation, but it's a love story. Lazarus' story is about what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, what it means to love him and to be loved by him. Hear this good news. When we hurt, so does Jesus. And just because resurrection is our gift doesn't mean we won't hurt or that God's heart doesn't hurt with us. Jesus responds to their pain and the pain of Lazarus' family by going to Bethany, even though he knows it's going to place him at the risk of his own death. In fact, the reports of Lazarus being raised will be exactly what reaches the authorities and initiates Jesus' arrest. Even so, he resolutely sets his face toward Bethany to show his oneness with the suffering family, to share their tears and to address their pain. In other words, my friends, Jesus always shows up precisely where God seems absent, instructing the family that in his love, this death is to be understood as sleep. Their conversation culminates in one of Jesus' most supremely comforting words. I am. I am salvation and love standing right here in front of you. Now, I love this part. If we paid close attention to this scripture, we'd notice that Jesus' power over death comes without any confession of faith from Mary, without any demonstration of trust from the onlookers. Doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. The triumph over death is not contingent upon anything other than the fact that God loves us. It's not withheld because of our lack of trust or withdrawn due to our anger with God. It isn't that her brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, a common belief among the first century Jews, but that Martha is in fact face to face and beloved by the one whom himself is life. 
That's what allows her to say, I believe. Are we not invited today that when things get difficult or painful, are we invited then to keep our souls open and to trust this love story even in our pain? Because if we can recognize this story as our story, a soul-open love story, then Jesus' journey to to Bethany is our own journey too. Just as Jesus must travel to his death, so will we. Let's just face it. It's no mistake that Jesus faces Lazarus' death head on. In his grief, it says he's greatly disturbed and deeply moved. And what does he do but say, where is he? In the final scene, the sisters are led to the tomb, voicing sensible concern about how long he's been in there. Jesus instructs them then, as a community, to remove the stone. Remove the stone, he calls Lazarus to come out. And when Jesus comes out with Lazarus, then the community is instructed to unbind him. Jesus does not avoid the valley of the shadow of death because he is ultimately aware that our hearts are the worst tombs that we have, sealed by our anxiety, by our loss of hope, and all that faces us in our mortality. You see, it's in this struggle that Jesus proclaims that there's never anything so dead that it keeps him from coming to us. Resurrected life is not just a future hope, Jesus in Lazarus offers abundant life as ever-present to us, available right now should the tombs be moved and the bindings lost. Can we keep our hearts open, trust in God's love in spite of our grief, and head into this journey? Because it's time to do some stone-moving in our lives for what's dead. We're invited as a community to look at the resurrection, to free God's children from the things that bind them because that's what loving God back means. Elizabeth Lesser shares the story of her youngest sister having a very rare blood cancer And the only treatment that was left to her after months and months and months was a bone marrow transplant. Elizabeth of the four girls' talent turned out to be the only one that was the perfect match. And when they discovered that, it put her into research mode. And she realized then that there was going to be this enormous bombardment of of, uh, chemotherapy that would put you near to death. And if you survive that, then millions of healthy marrow cells would be placed back into the body. 
And if that worked, then those cells might attack her sister and her sister's body might even reject it. It was a long road and a frightening one. She writes, rejection, attack, rejection, attack. Those words had a familiar ring in the context of being siblings. My sister and I had a long history of love, but we also had a long history of rejection and attack from minor misunderstandings to bigger betrayals. We didn't have the kind of relationship, she says, where we talked about deeper stuff. But like many siblings and like people in all kinds of relationships, we were hesitant to tell our truths, to reveal our wounds, to admit our wrongdoing. But when they learned about this rejection and attack mode that could happen, she thought something different might happen. She said, what if instead of just a bone marrow transplant, we have a soul marrow transplant? And she and her sister went to therapy for several sessions to work out the stuff that had been impediments in their lives in order to see if their healing promoted the body's healing as well. The transplant began... And as it did, they spent more and more time together. And it, she says it's like they were sisters, little girls again. They entered into this deep, deep time. They left the hamster wheels of work and life and joined each other in the lonely island of illness and healing. They spent months together in isolation, in the hospital, and then at home. And this is what her sister said. My sister said the year after transplant was the best year of her life, which was surprising. She suffered so much. But she said life never tasted sweeter. That because of the soul-bearing and the truth-telling we had done with each other, we became more unapologetically real. She in her life and me in mine. They said all the things they needed to say, did all the things they needed to do. They became braver and more authentic people, telling truths, but more important that than that, seeking the truth in others. Did they not experience resurrection and life right there in the midst of what would be death? This morning I'd like to leave you with a thought. None of us has to wait for a life or death situation to roll away the stones that have kept our relationships in tuned. To take off the burial clothes and free ourselves, to offer the marrow of our souls and to seek healing and love with others. We can do this in Christ. And Jesus did it so we could understand the love 
that never lets go so that we can have real life and abundantly so right here. We can do this for the saving of our souls, for the saving of the heart of our community and even for the world. It's because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, not only in the next one, but right here, right now. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you rise and join with me in our closing hymn? Something God alone can see. What is it within you that only God sees that you would like to bury and give new life? The one who calls himself I am can do that for you today. Let it go. Open your soul. Let that love story heal you. And may God's love restore you to a life you couldn't have even expected in its joy and fullness and grace. That's the promise. Amen.